0: Normally when you go to vote, you get in your voting booth and you have a sheet of paper in front of you or some screen and the directions tell you to choose only one candidate for say when you're voting for president or governor or mayor. And that doesn't normally elicit anything strong in us in terms of feelings, but it it creates big issues. So if there are multiple similar candidates running, we can't support all of them. So the support for those candidates divides between them. And if there's a candidate that you like, but maybe you perceive them as not being very viable, well, you may instead of choosing your favorite candidate, choose another candidate who is maybe the lesser of two evils amongst the front runners. And so you, you're having these issues where you're, this voting method is gathering very little information. And the little information that it does gather is often bad because people are pushed into voting dishonestly. And then you have secondary symptoms like good candidates not running because they don't want to be a spoiler. You have third party and independent or other newcomer candidates being marginalized so that their ideas aren't fairly heard when they actually do bring good ideas to the table. So you have all these issues come up as a mere result of forcing us to choose only one candidate.
1: Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Trump, Hillary, left, right, Republican, Democrat. Regardless of how you voted, regardless of where you live, you're going to want to hear this episode. It's shocking. We're talking about why the U.S. has the scientifically proven worst voting system in the world. Hey guys, I'm your host, Matt Ward, and this is The Disruptors, the show where we get the world's most interesting folks on so we can talk about the future and try to change it, make it better. Today, we've got someone who's doing transformational work, Aaron Hamlin on the program. He's the executive director of the Center for Election Science, a nonprofit focused on advancing better voting methods so that people can have more meaningful, impactful impact on democracy. And guess what? The US, well, it was recently declared an oligarchy by a very reputable... Princeton study, meaning the people at large didn't actually influence the policy, even though they're voting. We'll get to all this. Aaron's written for numerous large publications like Deadspin, Telegram, Democracy, Chronicles, Independent Voter Network. He's been featured in a lot of publications like Popular Mechanics, NPR, Reason, MSNBC, and others for his insights into voting methods. Aaron's also a proponent of effective altruism. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the podcast in terms of how you can use your career and life to create the biggest impact in the world. And this one is a really interesting, really exciting regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum we're talking the ins and outs of politics elections and why they're broken we talk about today why the u.s election system is so bad and how we can fix it what's approval voting why it's the best possible system and the science to back it up the reason why today's voting system actually leads to worse candidates and worse outcomes a la trump and hillary how trump influenced the election and how it changes politics forever why winner-take-all voting increases extremism and reduces voter turnout how other countries think about democracy and why better voting really may be the most important issue of our time. This is a really interesting, really fun one. It's not a conventional topic, and that's the purpose of the disruptors to get the non-conventional game changers on so that you guys can learn, benefit, and hopefully help us change the world. There's some really interesting stuff in this episode and hope you guys enjoy. If you do enjoy this, Please be sure to share it with a friend, disruptors.fm. The best, most important thing that you can do for us is to help us grow. We've calculated that we need around 50,000 listeners an episode to make this sustainable for us. It has to make some type of money so that we're able to keep paying the bills and keep putting out incredible content for you guys. If you're in the position where you would like to support us, even if it's a dollar, five dollars a month, whatever you can do, go to disruptors.fm slash Patreon. You can find our Patreon page there. And if you support us at a level of five dollars or more, per month, you'll unlock some bonus weekly episodes. So if you love The Disruptors, a la used to be named Fringe FM, if you love us and want to get more of it, then hit us up at Patreon, disruptors.fm Patreon. And if you haven't left a review for the show, it takes 30 seconds, it's incredibly valuable. iTunes is the gorilla in the room when it comes to podcasting. And if you can help us reach more people, then it's more likely that we can be sustainable long-term and help to keep putting out this content that no one else is, disruptors.fm iTunes. And now without further ado, I give you Aaron Hamlin. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFCs, Joe Rogan, and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins. On every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee, and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1000 store credit, $500 cash, and more. Plus, again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm Slash alpha to save 10% off Alpha Brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm/onnit if you want hardcore subs to live a high-performance life. Today's episode is brought to you guys by my 15-step guide to scalable Series A-worthy growth and marketing. If you're building a startup aiming for a billion-dollar outcome or a solopreneur looking for a sustainable six, seven, or eight-figure business. Get my free guide, which you can grab at mattward.io slash free, which walks you through the best, most proven tactics to acquire and retain customers, applicable for freelancers up to Fortune 500. If you want to grab that, plus bonus hacks and tips to build your business and more, visit mattward.io slash free. And if you need help or ever want to grow your business faster, I coach a handful of hardcore winners building businesses I believe in. You can reach out right on the site, mattward.io, for more. And now, let's get on with the episode.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So Aaron, I wanted to get you on because democracy is changing rapidly. The rise of Trump, the the rise of social media, everything has made essentially everything up to this point very different. At least that's what it feels like. This is your background. I wanted to, to learn a little bit more about where we're headed from a democracy
0: standpoint and what's wrong? Sure. Uh, So from a democracy standpoint, what we focus on at the Center for Election Science is studying and advancing better voting methods. And so one of the places where we really can't get ignored is with our vote. And so it's all the more important that it's more effectual. And so that's why the very way that we vote is so important. What
1: do you mean by that? The way that we vote? For most people, voting is just they have a They have a paper ballot, or maybe they're doing something electronic. They don't really think about the way they vote. They don't really think about they don't think about anything. They just think that that's how voting works. They don't really know the behind the scenes. A lot of people don't know representative type governments and how you can have the electoral college, etc. Can you break down just a little bit more for listeners in the U.S. how the system works and then what some of the flaws are? I know I think I've heard you or others say that we have probably the worst democracy in the world in terms of how it's structured.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. So normally when you go to vote, you get in your voting booth and you have a sheet of paper in front of you or some screen and the directions tell you to choose only one candidate for, say, when you're voting for a president or governor or mayor. And that doesn't normally elicit anything strong in this in terms of feelings, but it, it creates big issues. So if there are multiple similar candidates running we can't support all of them, so the support for those candidates divides between them. And if there's a candidate that you like, but maybe you perceive them as not being very viable, well, you may instead of choosing your favorite candidate, choose another candidate who is maybe the lesser of two evils amongst the frontrunners. And so you, you're having these issues where you're, this voting method is gathering very little information, and the little information that it does gather is often bad because people are pushed into voting dishonestly. And then you have secondary symptoms like good candidates not running because they don't want to be a spoiler. You have third-party and independent or other newcomer candidates being marginalized so that their ideas aren't fairly heard when they actually do bring good ideas to the table. So you have all these issues come up as a mere result of forcing us to choose only one candidate.
1: And my understanding is it's primarily the winner-take-all aspect of the US. Essentially, if you have only two parties, they have to become more and more dissimilar to remain two parties as opposed to merging into one. Because you have a winner-take-all dynamic, does that always become more and more extreme because otherwise the third and second party would compromise and become a a joint party to overtake the first? And we can't allow allow that to happen, so we have to become more dissimilar?
0: So, winner-take-all, all all that means is that you have a single contest. So you might look at something where we have something that's a legislative body, but in the US, we take something that's a legislative body, like say a US House or US Senate, and we make those single member districts. And that they're single member districts, that's what makes them winner take all. And so they're using a single winner voting method. And our choose one voting method is just one of many single winner voting methods. There are instances where you have to have a single winner voting method because there are offices that are inherently single winner executive offices and so when you're using the single winner voting methods you have to have you have to be using a good single winner voting method there are possibilities for things that are not winner take all you could do multi member districts for instance and that would be not winner take all and are all there's a whole class of those whether they be block systems or proportional representation type systems
1: Let's talk about some of those other systems, the pros and cons of each, because I don't think most people have ever even considered the possibility that there are different ways to structure a democracy.
0: Fortunately, there are. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, just
1: I, just changing the rules here might, might require a revolution. The people, the people in power, kind of like the rules.
0: Uh, so, the single winner voting method that we push at the Center for Election Science is a voting method called approval voting. With approval voting instead of selecting just one candidate you can select all the candidates that you approve of so it's really simple it means that you can use all the same types of voting mechanics Uh, it's agnostic to voting mechanics um, in terms of whether you're using machine a paper ballot Uh, the ballot design can look the same Uh, the only real difference is the directions to tell you that you can select as many as you approve of instead of just one and so the simple change of letting you select as many as you want has all kinds of advantages. And this,
1: this is like when you're watching a Netflix movie with friends and I want this one or that one, and she wants that one or this one, and there's no overlap, but there are movies that we would both like if we were to able to select all of the ones we would like, as opposed to just picking one, you find a movie much faster and it's one we both like
0: more. That's right. Yeah. It's a very simple concept. You could think of it as like a thumbs up, thumbs down for each particular option. And that simple change has a lot of benefits. So with this particular voting method, you can always support your honest favorite candidate, no matter what, even if this candidate is a long shot, they're not viable at all. If you like what they're saying, what they're bringing to the table, you can support that candidate. And if you want at the same time to hedge your bets to try to have an effect on who the winner is, you can support one of the other Front runners that you find acceptable at the same time as supporting your honest favorite. And that, does, that, that flexibility makes it so that even if, say, you don't get your honest favorite as uh, the winner, you at least give them an accurate reflection of support. You and all the other people supporting that candidate who otherwise would not have been able to. And as a consequence, those ideas that they brought to the table, they get heard and they're not marginalized the way that they would otherwise be under our choose one voting method which pushes those candidates aside.
1: It pushes them aside and also it leads, I imagine, to a lot of the voter turnout problems. The U.S. voter turnout's like 30% or something absurd. Which do you think is the driving factor behind why elections are so ineffectual? Do you think it's because of the turnout or it's because of the system or is it a combination of both?
0: Uh, I have to lean more, towards, uh, more heavily towards the system itself. So you could have 100% voter turnout and our elections would still be disastrous. And the reason for that is because you have, if you have 100% voter turnout, so everyone is giving uh, their vote. If all of their votes have bad information on it, it doesn't matter that you had 100% voter turnout. Uh, you might think of it the same way as, say, survey sampling. You don't need to sample the entire population. You only need to make sure that the sample that you take is. Reflective or representative of the population that you're that you're pulling from. Now that that does become an issue in U.S. elections when certain groups of people are not turning out to vote or are not able to vote, so that the people who are voting aren't reflective of the actual population. That that is an issue, and you might also look at voter turnout as kind of a proxy measure for the faith that people have in the system that their vote is effectual, and so. Uh, in, in that sense, you want voter turnout to be higher as well because you want people to have confidence that their uh, vote is meaningful. And I mean, to be fair to those people who uh, aren't voting, their, their vote is meaningful, but not nearly in the way that it could be with a better voting method. So if people were to, were to have approval voting, so that if, say, they didn't like the front runners and they actually wanted to support someone else, or if they wanted to see more candidates uh, run in a race that otherwise wouldn't run, then now the voting method becomes really important. And when you're using something like approval voting there, now you have an effectual tool. And now it can make more sense to go out to vote where otherwise maybe someone may, maybe would have been on the fence, for instance. So I know a big part of what the Russians and possibly Trump conspired on, we don't
1: have facts on that, were more or less to suppress the votes in minorities and women, et cetera, because they, generally speaking, would be more likely to vote for a Bernie or a Hillary. And they were incredibly successful in doing it does does this new era of social media and personalized targeting make that voter voter turnout statistic become even more important because you can selectively essentially discourage people from voting
0: yeah so like i mentioned before you don't want the people who turn out to be unrepresentative of the population as a whole you want those to be mirrored as much as possible so To the extent any of that happens, it's not a good thing.
1: So who's doing a good job when it comes to having a more sound uh, democracy system? I know in general you hear a lot about Europe, especially the Scandinavian countries. Who do you guys look to? Who do you guys think of as the best country or model?
0: So some countries do a reasonable job with their multi-winner systems, whether they're electing their parliament or their legislature, where places... Mess up mostly across the, the board is with their single winner methods uh, and their executive offices. So you look at a lot of Scandinavian countries, a lot of uh, Western European countries, they use uh, different forms of proportional representation. And those are good systems, much better than uh, single winner uh, systems that elect, uh, where that uh, lend themselves to, to gerrymandering. Because when you use a single winner method, for something that would otherwise be, could otherwise be at large, you wind up drawing lines. And whether you uh, draw those lines by people with conflicted interests or you have some kind of computer algorithm draw those lines, you have strange outcomes that, turn out, that, that can often turn out to be disproportional so that some group who has power uh, really doesn't deserve it. So you get these things called false majorities uh, that are common when you use single winner systems when you could otherwise use a proportional method. And a false majority, uh, and exi- uh, what that is, is when you have, say, a party who uh, gets less than half of the vote, and yet they get more than half of the seats. So this is something that doesn't make sense. We would rather that kind of thing not happen. But it happens quite often when we use this winner take takeoff system, that is, we have Uh, some kind of legislative body. And instead of using a proportional method, we instead divide everybody up into these single member districts.
1: And to outline kind of how they're doing that, it's essentially, it's oftentimes Republicans, but they're essentially looking at, here's where we have a strong base. If we were to pull in some of these surrounding areas where we have weaker bases, we can still maintain the majority, but get rid of some of these voters from other districts so we have better chances of winning in the other districts as
0: well. Yeah, the, the mechanics are right. Although it can be Democrats just as Republicans. It, 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 can,
1: it can be both, but just generally speaking, what we've seen. But
0: I, I think it just matters in terms of who's in power. If that party, particular party, is in power, then they can take their turn to do nasty things. So we, in the U.S., we've seen both parties do terrible things.
1: Speaking of terrible things, how do we change this system? Because it is a relatively terrible thing. But to get people that that are benefiting from something to change something is oftentimes nigh impossible.
0: Yeah. So you. So you you were asking also about uh, the way that different countries uh, or or, or places. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, And and this this ties into how you create that change. And so in the November election, the city of Fargo, North Dakota, uh, just voted on a ballot initiative to implement approval voting for its future elections. And so right now, Fargo has arguably the best voting method to elect its mayor. Uh, in the world uh, compared to other options that are out there and being used right now. So they're using that voting method where you can select as many as you want. And the tool that they used was ballot initiative, because when you're you're using a ballot initiative, you don't have to worry about these conflicts of interest. So say somebody got elected by a certain way, they're not inclined to go ahead and change the way that they got elected and jeopardize their chances of getting reelected. And so, because of that, you've got to go in with the ballot initiative and let the uh, people themselves empower themselves with a better voting method by allowing themselves to vote on it.
1: What's a ballot initiative? Is that just polling polling, uh, citizens and getting them to make a a collective decision?
0: Uh, Yeah, you, you are getting citizens to use a collective decision on a particular policy issue. So, the way that a ballot initiative works is that you have someone behind the initiative, And they go and organize to collect signatures. Then once they're able to collect a certain number of signatures, they turn those in and with the ballot language, and they work with the local city to figure out what that uh, ballot language is. And then it's on the ballot. And then the next election, the general population votes on whether to approve or not approve of this initiative. And if if they approve on it by more than half, generally that's the threshold, then it becomes law. And then local, local counties,
1: et cetera, can do this. And theoretically, if it happens as a grassroots movement, it could eventually become national policy.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. Al- although there are some elements that you need in order for this to be able to work in a particular locality. So not, for instance, not every uh, locality offers a ballot initiative. Not every state offers a ballot initiative. Also, not every city is able to change its own election laws locally. So there are what are called home rule states uh, in the US, which make it so that you have to be a home rule state in order, to, uh, in order for a locality to be able to change its own uh, local election laws. If it's not a home rule state, and there are exceptions to this, then the locality isn't allowed to do that. Or perhaps there's another rule Say there's this other complicated rule called Dillon's rule. Which means that if a state explicitly gives permission to a locality to, to change their own rules, then they can they can do that. So in the US you've got all these different rules, but in general there's this one rule called home rule that means that a locality can change its own uh, voting rule. But if it doesn't fall under those, then the locality just kind of out of luck and you have to go at the at the state level if the state has a ballot initiative.
1: Is there a way to create a motivating force? So for instance with Marijuana has been legalized. you can call it cannabis. you can call it marijuana, whatever you want to. It's been legalized in a bunch of states, and suddenly the states are making tons of money on taxes and You see all the other states clamoring like let's let's make cannabis legal. This is good. It, plus it's making people healthier. We're getting rid of a lot of the opioid issues, etc You see this push for making cannabis legal. Is there some type of way that we can do that for a better at least voting system on the local level that we can expand that outward what's the what's the driving force? what's the motivation? For, for states to adopt?
0: I think, I think replication is the, the tool there. So, voting methods isn't something that people are normally familiar with. So, it's a matter of educating and getting involved with, uh, local, with, with cities at the local level and their community, getting them familiar with this and then replicating that. So, for instance, we teamed up with some folks in Fargo who were interested in empowering themselves and changing their voting method. Then following that win, we're now working to look at other uh, cities around Fargo. So focusing geographically, because like those uh, other cities around Fargo were not siloed off from this discussion. So they, they've they now heard, heard of this. And so it makes it easier to spread out. And then from there, uh, we're already looking at other uh, cities that are even larger to be able to replicate this in. And so once you get these You get this replication in place, and then you're able to scale up in terms of the size of cities, which Fargo is not small, it's over 100,000 people, but being able to scale up from that nonetheless, now you're starting to set more examples. People can see what these voting methods look like in practice, they can contrast that to our terrible voting method that we use now, and then you can start to see that clamoring for, okay, we see a solution here, we need to get with this, we need to start doing this. It's like inception,
1: an idea can be a virus, especially a good one. So I know you'll say this is probably outside your, your expertise or your pay grade, but I'm curious to get your thoughts anyways. What do you think about in terms of the future of government, small scale, large scale, decentralized, centralized? What do you guys find or what do you personally believe is the best or the, the better system going forward? Not just for the US, but worldwide as well.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with your, your, your intuition and say that that's something that is kind of outside of my scope.
1: I think it's outside of your scope, but I think your scope is so related to this that your opinion is valuable, regardless of what you think.
0: In terms of like how government is set up or?
1: How it's set up, how we govern ourselves, how democracy functions. Is a large-scale democracy, a worldwide democracy even possible? Is that desirable? What do you think? You don't have to be right. You just have to speculate. (laughs) Just have to speculate
0: wildly. Uh, I I think with... I think like any kind of government ha- needs to have checks and balances. So, like for instance, uh, in the U.S., we have a republic-type government. But at the same time, there are certain parts where there are conflicts of interest with people who are already in office. And so, there are some aspects where a direct democracy makes sense, which I think a balance is a good example of that. It would probably uh, – other countries, that use initiatives for – National policy as well. I think that's something that's interesting. That's something that's uh, worth uh, looking into for the U.S., although the pragmatics of getting something like that implemented, I think, would be challenging. But uh, I think any kind of government that you have set up needs these types of checks and balances, and often that has an integration there with a direct democracy where there's a conflict of interest with people who are already elected, where they wouldn't really be able to implement certain policies that would benefit everyone. Whereas people who are voting directly, they don't have that conflict, and yet they would be inclined to see that benefit for everyone.
1: How would you think about a random democracy? So, leaders are elected essentially on a lottery-based system, so that we get a bit more representation across across varying peoples.
0: Uh, so, I've heard of that idea before. I uh, think the technical term is called sortition. and so that that so that definitely would not work with single-winner offices. So, when you have a single-winner position. That's not something that you want done randomly. But if you think about it in terms of, say, like survey sampling, uh, when you do simple random sampling in order to get a sample that's representative of a population that you're interested in, that, that type of process is a lot, like, gets you in a way that's similar to what the goals of proportional representation are. So you get some of those same outcomes. The The question of, well, like who would put themselves in that lottery? Like are those people who would put themselves in that lottery, are they representative of the population as a whole? Um, so are you like losing some of that representation? Uh, it's It's hard to say. It would It would be simpler. Uh, you'd get money out of it. People would have less uh, uh, – there would be certainly lower barriers to entry. I mean if the only barrier to entry was whether you opt in –
1: it could be it could be forced as well. It could be like jury duty. You just maybe shorten the terms. Yeah. Everybody gets a everyone has to do a year. Yeah. It just se- it just seems like it seems like there's a lot of promise. Does your gut tell you that would be better than what we have today?
0: Uh sortition versus taking, say, the US House and US Senate and uh, uh electing them using this choose one voting method, uh, in winner take all districts. So that's really horrible. So yeah. So that. Sertition might be better than taking these winner take take all offices and what could otherwise be at large offices used using a proportional method. I would for for something like this, I think I would rather see sertition kind of tested out like in some other some other contexts first, rather uh, before kind of going at this kind of scale. And even if that were to happen, uh, I think it would make sense to have it balanced out with some other type of republic type government. Were using say a proportional method to elect some chamber of government, and maybe like a if we were to experiment with sortition, maybe start with giving them some non-binding ability in terms of decisions. Like for for instance, an example of that at a lower scale would be uh, citizens' juries, where you have some kind of policy issue, you take a random selection of people, and you get them together. And you get them to discuss a particular issue, you bring experts on that issue, and then at the end, they give a recommendation on their stance on a particular issue. So that's kind of like sortition at a smaller scale, but there they're giving non-binding recommendations. Um, so it, it maybe makes sense to start from there and then move up to something binding once you have more of a, a track record to see
1: how that kind of thing goes. Are there any experiments like this being run anywhere in the world? Or, or other types of very alternative democracies or governing systems?
0: Sortitions have, sorry, not sortitions, but citizen juries I believe have been experimented with uh, in Canada. We had spoken with uh, one expert previously, uh, a Canadian academic, who had experimented with those in Canada. But to my knowledge, I, th- I believe those were non binding. There are probably okay. some other ones that I'm just not aware of. What scares you the most today? It can be anything. Uh, That we use such an atrocious method to elect people to government office who are in control of vast amount of spending and policy issues that control our day-to-day lives and affect our our lives now as well as people in the future. That we're using such an atrocious method to decide who those people are who make those decisions. That's scary. Is Is it scarier that
1: that's the system we're using or that people
0: don't realize that? It's probably neck and neck uh, those are both pretty scary um i well, I think the scarier part is that i mean it's it's horrendous that that's what we're we're using right now and to think that that's how decisions are getting made by these people who we elect using this terrible method, and that we're excluding people by basically telling them that you have to meet a certain set of qualifications to be viable, where viability translates to either name recognition or having money, whereas Neither one of those things necessarily translates to being able to do a good job in office, and yet those are the measures that we tend to be using oftentimes to decide whether someone should be elected. How do you think about mobile voting or blockchain? I've seen a lot of buzz
1: in terms of reinventing voting that you also see as well, the, the counter of everything is hackable except for paper and the U.S. election machines can be hacked in like 20 minutes by a five-year-old with a a pencil.
0: Uh, So... This is an area that's a little bit outside of my personal expertise, but people that I talk with in this space tend to fall down more on the side of we need to have paper trails and we need to have that set up so that our elections are aud- auditable such as using a risk limited audit and to the degree that we don't have paper trails that makes things you know that we're kind of just asking for for trouble at that point. So at least having a paper trail and everything that we do and making it so that we're always using these risk limiting audits. And we've definitely seen those in the past couple of elections,
1: having to go back and recount and recount and recount, wait, who's the president going to be? Shoot. We screwed up Florida. Mm. Oh, it all gets flip-flopped. Do you think, do you think there's any, I guess you, you probably wouldn't have insight into that and just into the level of hacking that's happening currently.
0: Yeah. That's like that component is outside of my, my own personal technical background, but if you're using a, something that has a paper trail, you're using a risk limiting audit so that you're basically sampling the population of votes that you have. And then you're seeing if um, that sample makes sense in terms of being representative of uh, the election result that you saw. So, and if it's not, then you have a certain, if it's not within that certain degree of, of confidence that you have, then you think, well, something may be going on here. Uh, we need to go and pull the entire set of votes that we have for this election and and do a recount. But if it's within that range of competence, then well, seems like things are probably fine. Okay, basically statistical significance.
1: Outside of outside of your work, what industries, areas, technologies, et cetera, are you most interested in excited about?
0: I guess with personal stuff, I, don't know, I like things like clean meat. Uh, I think those are pretty interesting as a way of. Um, using displacement with uh, regular meat as a uh, as a way of diminishing animal suffering, you avoid environmental harms, uh, pollution, and uh, you gain a lot of efficiency, uh, particularly over time as you get economies of scale and the technology improves. So that's maybe an example of a personal component of technology that I find interesting.
1: Have you tried any? And if if not, when would you be willing to try something like that? How far along does it have to be? Does it have to be in stores? Does it have to be FDA approved? What's your comfort level?
0: Well, I mean, it's just growing regular meat using like the original cells, So, I don't think there's anything like inherently dangerous about that. So, uh, I, I'd be pretty eager to try it. I wouldn't have any uh, qualms. It, I, I imagine that initially there'd be a higher price point, And so, probably would have to wait till it gets those economies of scale and the price point goes down before I would be able to eat it at any kind of regular basis. But
1: yeah, it's pretty it's pretty exceptionally expensive right now, but the the costs have been coming down just so exponentially. It's it's really interesting. Just with what we're able to do on on that front, I think there's there's a ton of a ton of promise, just access to access to meat, healthy, healthy protein, etc is something that is very not democratized throughout the world. Speaking of speaking of broken democracy. How do you how do you think about that dichotomy between between first world and third world haves and have-nots both today and as we go forward?
0: Uh, I think it would be more like on a personal level in terms of like my opinion rather than like something that
1: No, it's okay. You're not you're not an official person in any capacity. You're just you. Don't worry. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> and so you are asking about like the difference between have and have-nots and first and third world. Well, I mean there's probably a sense of responsibility if We happen to be better off, and uh, a lot of that is going to be due to factors like chance. Like You look at, for instance, uh, Jared Diamond's work in Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, His main premise was that the way that people got to the way that they are are, was more in happenstance. Like Certain resources happened to be available in certain geographies. Certain land happened to be more fertile. And so those locations happen to be able to to grow in a way that others uh, weren't, and then add a whole bunch of variables, add a long timeline, and you kind of get to where we are at a at a group level. And so like it, the underlying premise there is that a lot of this is just kind of due to to the chance. And now we have this huge uh, world with with global trade, with information trade, that it makes sense to be able to go and like help others out in terms of being able to make sure that those resources that weren't maybe naturally available or or even they weren't available at a, an earlier time reference that uh, they can um, kind of be brought up to speed so that they're more on a kind of a, a level playing field so that uh, otherwise what's happening is uh, we're squandering immense amount of talent across the world just because people happen to be born in a certain area Whereas like a, there are for countless geniuses out there that have been untapped merely because they happen to be born in this in a specific area or, or like people who maybe would otherwise be uh, more talented than they are if, say, they had gotten better nutrition when they were younger or some other environmental component that would have been able to be addressed.
1: Is that a big part of the reason why you got into the effective altruism community? Essentially, you were born... Relatively lucky compared to the rest
0: of the world, and wanted to give back. Well, I think it's undeniably true that, like, like I was born in a kind of a lucky situation, like, like many of us of us are. In terms of uh, why, well, I think one one way that effective altruism resonates well with me is that early on, when I was in school, uh, and I was there for quite a while, trying to figure out like what made sense uh, for me to do the types of criteria that I was looking at in terms of where do I go into it other than like I should be reasonably skilled or have some kind of ability in in what I'm doing, which is wanting to do something that has high impact and wide breadth, and then also something that tends to be neglected. So I don't want to be doing something that everybody else is doing because it's not really adding any value. But also, if nobody else is doing it, I also want to be doing something that actually has kind of some kind of meaningful impact.
1: How can people think about that going forward? Everyone has the ability to change the world. And I'm firmly of the belief that you can 10x or 100x the results that you achieve just by thinking about it a little bit differently. But how can people think about that for their careers, their businesses, their futures? How did you think about that? How do you decide what mission to go for?
0: Well, when I was in school, I mean, I just uh, kind of explored everything and got kind of an idea of what I was and wasn't good at and just thinking in general and looking at certain areas like well like how does this impact people's lives is this something that's neglected so just asking some of those basic questions
1: what do you think the community needs the most help with not the voting community but just in general effective
0: altruism I don't know know that's a question that I've reflected on particularly deeply in order to give like a, a quick answer well one thing I am excited about perhaps uh selfishly given the the work that uh, th- that we do at the Center for election science is that there are some components like the open philanthropy project which focuses on more high risk uh, issues and so with the voting methods like we were considered uh, more high risk particularly dealing with approval voting because it hadn't been done before before this huge win that we got in fargo where but we it was questionable initially whether we would be able to be successful. And that initiative uh, passed with 64%, of it, technically 63.5%. So really uh, over, uh, an overwhelming win. So one thing I am encouraged by within the effective altruism movement is um, they, they, they have a number of, of safer bets where, like for instance, with bed nets, like there's solid research out there that says, okay, we're going to see uh, these results. Like these, we can expect on average, a certain number of people aren't going to get malaria because we're investing in these bed nets. But they're also just like you would, and say, perhaps an investment portfolio and thinking like, well, like uh, we think this is this is true. Maybe we have, uh, there are these other bets, we'll call them over here, where we think we could see these really magnificent outcomes, but we don't know. And so, because we have this level of doubt, and we're also thinking about like maybe there are different types of frameworks that we can use in terms of evaluating the degree of good that something is, we can, taking all that into account, kind of diversify our investment a little bit and say, okay, well, let's try some of these other things too at at, at varying levels, keeping in mind what the risk is. And as we gather more evidence and we see how that risk changes, changes, and as we see how this potential payoff looks in terms of good, then as we get that new information, we can change our bets. Maybe we up our bets at that point once we see uh better information and things look a little bit better. And so with that respect I'm I'm excited in that like it uh it's there's a willingness there to, to take higher risk bets which in the nonprofit sector isn't something that you see a lot. Um a lot of times in the nonprofit sector foundations for instance so the way that they all interpret something as being a high risk uh bet is that they use the dollar amount of investment as a way to quantify that whereas rather than looking at, say, uncertainty. So it, it's, it's nice to see uh, these higher risk, uh, relatively higher risk bets uh, being taken place within the effective altruism community. So I'm, I'm pretty excited like, by that.
1: It's like the approval voting we were talking about. If you can hedge your bets a little bit, you can probably have a better chance of a better outcome. Yeah, yeah. How do you think about nonprofits going forward? We have businesses, we have corporations, but increasingly we have at least more effective Nonprofits—they're—they're they're able to focus more on change and impact, and yet a business, in almost every circumstance, will always have more
0: scale. How do
1: you think about that?
0: I, I think a nonprofit model makes sense in a lot of circumstances. So, if so, a business makes sense if you have a good or or service that provides a reliable revenue stream over time. But with a nonprofit there's not necessarily a good or a service that you're providing that can sustain a reliable revenue. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not putting really awesome outputs into the world and making the world better. And so, in those circumstances, when you're you're not able to, say, get as much in terms of a reliable revenue stream uh, from goods or services, then a nonprofit probably makes sense. How do
1: you think about the next set of presidential elections? Do you think we'll suffer from the same issues? Essentially, what happened was Trump was incredibly a lot of things. But by being those things, that got into the media. The media was essentially a clickbait type system. So because he was getting clicks and eyeballs, more stories were written and more stories were written and more stories were written. That combined with the, kind of the divide over the future of the U.S. led to him essentially being popular and people voting for him. Are are we in an era now where politicians can say anything, do anything because they've learned to game the system or do you think we go back to the way things were for the next election or the one after that?
0: Well, I mean I think about yeah. So I, I don't really have a lot of confidence uh in the political system as it stands just because we use that terrible voting method and it causes all kinds of dynamics that are not immediately apparent. So I mean you look say in the Republican primary there you had at its peak 17 candidates and like so our choose one voting method really does a terrible job when you have more than two candidates 17 is more than 2 it's way more than 2 and it also does a terrible job when you have candidates that are similar here you're talking about a primary that's a condition where a lot of candidates are similar so you have a bunch of candidates a bunch of them are similar and so you have Vote splitting on an enormous scale. And so you basically get somebody that you can get someone that's almost random uh, in terms of the, the outcome when you have that type of setup. And so this is not the way that you want to run elections. And, but this is the way that we currently run elections and the way that we'll continue to do them for a while. And so we're going to, we can only expect to continue in these types of uh, terrible outcomes when you have. Someone that's elected, who like even within their prime, uh, their party like they they weren't a big fan of that that candidate, and surely this has happened previously within the Democratic Party as well. So, and this will continue happening because we're using the same setup and we're not changing the rules.
1: Yeah, it's like you got ten pairs of shoes; nine of them look pretty nice and all the same. The other one is these pink ugly things, like a six year old <laughs> would wear. But everyone notices it because <laughs> it's the only one that looks different. Uh, I, I have two last questions for you, Aaron. So the first one is. Oh, Lord. What was the first one? I'll ask you the second one first. If you had one thing to leave people with, a quote, a call to action, it could be anything. What would it be and why? Uh,
0: so, I really believe that, this, that the voting method is one of the most impactful um, ways that we can reform government. And the scale of this is huge. We're talking about spending vast amount of money. Government worldwide spends over $20 trillion a year. That's an enormous figure. And then you think about the policies that they create that influence our lives, the it, it's just there's no parallel to it in terms of the amount of influence. and so the, the fact that we're using such a horrendous voting method to determine who makes those uh, decisions is really a horrendous fact. And so this issue is largely invisible to people, and that there's such a simple solution. You use a voting method that allows you to select as many as you want. You're not Again, you're not ranking with approval voting. You're just picking as many as you want. That there's this simple solution that addresses so many of these concerns. And the reason that it's not used right now is because people just don't know what it is. And so one easy thing that people can do is just tell all the people that this method exists, share our work at the Center for Election Science. Their website is really easy. It's electionscience.org. And yeah, and I mean- this is something that people can easily pick up. They can use in their day to day lives. And if people, some people out there happen to be in reform organizations, when they're in a five hundred one c four, and they, those are the type of people that we like to see to, to reach out to us to really replicate the types of change that that we've uh, helped with uh, the folks in Fargo and to be able to, to scale that up so that those people who are sitting in those chairs making those important decisions uh, that they can we're putting better people in those chairs. And the reason that we're putting better people in those chairs is because we're creating a voting method that chooses better people uh, from the candidates that we have. And the the better voting method that we're using also encourages better people to run. So not only are we making better decisions about the candidates who run, but we're also encouraging better candidates to run. It pretty much couldn't get worse than it is today. You know what I would like to see?
1: I would Netflix is spending something like $6 billion a year on original content. They're making documentaries about everything. If I were you, I, w- I would pitch this to my higher-ups, trying to get Netflix to work with you guys to do some type of original documentary on the problems with voting system. And, I mean, they could i mean, they could tie it into Trump right here and pretty much outline exactly what it happened, why it happened, and then build that into a documentary theme. I think that could be something that would be really interesting and one of the best ways to reach people. Because... At this point, most of America has Netflix or access to some type of streaming documentary service.
0: Yeah, there is, um, there is one, I believe it's Fusion. Let me see that. There is one that we used, uh, that we worked with a, a group recently. It wasn't really a documentary, but it was about a five-minute long segment. Let me see if I can. No, there's a good chance to, to uh, find it, but I can maybe see it quickly. Uh, Function. Yeah, so there's a channel on YouTube called uh, Function. Mm-hmm. And uh, they worked with us and they interviewed one of our advisors, uh, Dr. Stephen Brams at New York University. And they created a video called The Problem with Our Voting System and How to Fix It. And it's about a five minute video. Not, I mean, not the length that you would expect from a documentary, but gives kind of a, a quick overview about voting methods in general, why it's an issue, and looking at approval voting as one of those alternatives. I think you could do a really funny skit just with
1: people picking out which Netflix movie they wanted to watch, and them all getting movies they hated because they could each have only one pick. Yeah, that should be your, that should be your metaphor going forward because that's something that people can relate to. Uh, Aaron, I want to thank you for coming on today. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Hopefully, it's been informative for people. People are at least a bit more engaged and understand why this is important. They understand it's a problem. Most people didn't understand this was a problem until probably today. Where's the best place for people to reach out to you
0: and say, "Hey." Yeah. So you can go to our website at electionscience.org. And from there, you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we send it out about once a month. Sometimes when we have exciting stuff, like when we had our big win in Fargo, uh, we were sending out uh, more, more email uh, then. But we try not to overload people uh, with their inboxes and they get to learn all about what's happening in terms of uh, voting method reform, And we also put out articles. I, one of the things I try to do is there are a lot of areas within voting theory that are very counterintuitive. And so we also put out articles that address those issues. Like, for example, one that I wrote a while back was something called the majority illusion, uh, which, uh, spells out why no single winner voting method can guarantee a majority winner when there are more than two candidates. So, like, you see this type of concept come up a lot where people say, well, like, we want someone elected with a majority or we need a runoff so we can get a majority winner uh, or we need to use this instant runoff voting method in order to get a majority winner. So, the article itself lays out why you can't have a majority, why no voting method can guarantee a majority winner. You can have a majority winner sometimes when that winner exists, but that winner doesn't always exist. And so, it talks about different ways of qualifying what a majority winner is, and how like none of those ways can always exist. And so see articles like that about majority, different other types of uh, voting theory concepts, so that people can get a better grasp on this thing, because this is something that is not really talked about very often. And then at the same time, when you look at, say, popular media articles, I get driven crazy all the time uh, with some of the headlines uh, that talk about voting methods. And I just see like these mistakes. It's like it's very it's very frustrating. So we try to set the record straight in a lot of ways by writing these articles that are written without an assumption of previous knowledge from the reader.
1: If people want to push these ideas in in their town in their elections, they want to try to get some of these systems implemented. Do you guys have the resources or ability to help them with doing that? Do you have guides or anything?
0: Yeah. So the way that if somebody wants to get the gets a voting method implemented, uh for say, like approval voting, there are some elements that need to be present. One is they need to have a ballot initiative process. They need to be within a state that's home rule. They need to be looking at a single winner uh, voting method. And then fourthly, uh, they need to have uh, a connection with a 501c4 ad- political advocacy organization. So there are a lot of them that exist at the state level, but these are groups who have experience with ballot initiatives, and and doing these types of election reforms. And so, if someone is really interested in changing their voting method locally, I would recommend their uh, their initial steps as reaching out to local five hundred one c four organizations, getting them on board, building those relationships. Also, uh, if they can build relationships within the political community, so such as like even third parties, like say the local Green Party or Libertarian Party, getting them on board with it, uh, which we. Uh, many of those are many of those organizations are already aware of alternative voting methods largely because they stand to benefit quite a lot by using alternative voting methods so if you're in a position when you're excited about voting methods you want your locality to to change what it's using either at the local or in the future at the at the state level one of the primary things i would recommend is reaching out to c4 building those relationships once uh those relationships are are built then reaching out to us
1: Thanks. This has been a, this has been fun. It's been super helpful. Stop waiting for the world to change, guys. It's not going to change for you. Thanks, Aaron. This has been fun. Cheers and see you later, guys. Hopefully this has been helpful. If it has, make sure you look into it, reach out and would love if you guys would leave a review for the podcast disruptors.fm slash iTunes. It's super helpful for us in terms of getting this message out to more people. Thanks.